0: You're listening to an ACCA podcast.
1: Thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. My name's Andrew Atchison, and I'm the artist educator at ACCA at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as sovereign custodians of the land on which ACCA is situated, and to extend respect to ancestors and elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people who are with us today or listening to the podcast. So, today's panel is part of the exhibition and expansive research project, Who's Afraid of Public Space?, which explores the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life. Who's Afraid of Public Space? takes place here at ACCA, but also extends across Melbourne through a series of satellite exhibitions in collaboration, sorry, in collaboration with cultural partners. And this is complemented by a plethora of installations, events, and projects in the public realm. Um, So just to give you an idea of what the program will be for the next hour, um, today uh, Ross Coulter, Eugenia Lim, who's on my right, and James in the middle, James Newman, are going to each present for about 10 minutes on their projects that are represented within the education space where we are now, so on that wall over there. and then we're gonna have some conversation and then hopefully some uh, Q&As with the, the wonderful audience that we have here today. Um, so I'll read everyone's biographies first, so you have a bit of context for who you're going to hear. Uh, Ross Coulter, who is on uh, far, my far right, uh, is an artist working on the traditional lands of the Yalakut Willem clan of the Boonrung. He holds a Bachelor of Fine Arts with honours and a Master of Fine Arts by Research both from the Victorian College of the Arts. Uh, Coulter has exhibited widely, including at various artists-run initiatives, the National Gallery of Victoria and Matsudai Nobutai Art Centre in Japan. Uh, Ross has received numerous awards and grants, including the George Moore Fellowship and the, uh, sorry, at the State Library of Victoria, and the Keith and Elizabeth Murdoch Travelling Fellowship for his 10,000 Paper Planes project, which is represented here, you can see high up on the wall. Um, Recently, Ross has also been investigating the possibilities for artists to present artworks in virtual spaces. Uh, Eugenia Lim is an Australian artist of Chinese Singaporean descent, working across body, lens, social and spatial practice to explore how national identities, migration and capital cut, divide and bond our interdependent world. Based on unceded lands of the Kulin nation, Lim has shown widely, including at the uh, Tate Modern UK, Loop Barcelona, Fever Buenos Aires, Recontemporary Italy, and most recently Kunsthal Charlottenburg in Denmark. She has undertaken, undertaken residencies at Experimental Television Centre New York, 4A Beijing Studio and Gertrude Contemporary, and is the winner of the 2022 Deep Forest Art Land Award, and is a finalist in the 67th Blake Prize. So, lots going on. <laughs> um, James Nguyen makes film, sculpture, and performance. He works with his family and friends to unpack encounters with diasporic failure and the decolonial absurd. These collaborations help to mitigate the day-to-day abstractions of global instability and the reality of having to deal with your loved ones. James James was born in the highlands of Vietnam and raised in the suburban ganglands of Sydney in what is now called Bankstown. He, is widely, he has exhibited widely and will be premiering a film with Victoria Pham in March as part of the program Peripheral Visions at Anna Schwartz Gallery. And that's viewable <coughs> excuse me, from the 1st to the 12th of March. So thanks everyone for coming. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, to give some context uh, about the space we're in and that we're discussing... Um, Today I am, um, alongside my role at ACCA as artist educator, I am an uh, artist and curator and I've got an interest in public space and that led to the invitation to curate this space as part of the broader Who's Afraid of Public Space program. Um, And the concept is that it's a kind of active hybrid space. So on this side of the space you've got 13 solo and uh, collaborative projects from different contemporary artists that each kind of look at different facets of how you can approach working in public space and um, this is an active zone so students who visit the exhibition come here and do workshops and have discussions and that kind of takes place in the centre here and then the work that they create in response to the exhibition is um, on this wall here and so you can see all their kind of uh, propositions and renders and imaginings for what their public artworks might be or their works for public space. Um, and in the centre, we have um, this furniture that you're all sitting on and that we are inhabiting. Um, and that is was commissioned by a student design team called ASAP um, that comprises uh, Evan Klesi, Sheng He, Kathleen Hu, and Sophia Kunduras. And that was supported by RMIT Interior Design um, uh, via Ying Dan and also Joseph Norster of these are the projects we do together. So. Um, yeah, it's meant to be a show and a place to talk and make things and see new things. Um, without further ado, I might start with you, Ross, if you want to share on your work.
2: That'd be great. Uh, thanks, Andrew. And thanks for the invitation to uh, participate in the program and to be hit. abs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'll just talk about the project, the 10,000 Paper Planes Project, um... That how it just came about and to be on the wall like that. Um, so in the late 90s, I was working at the State Library in the photocopy section, uh, helping people photocopy. Um, so as most people might know, the State Library is a reference library, so you can't borrow the books. You can only photocopy um, 10, and you know, 10% of any publication or one chapter. And it was my role uh, to assist in that process. Uh, so it wasn't as interesting as it sounded. But um, so that's my, and as I was there, like I noticed, like some people, and you might feel this way about getting a photocopy yourself. You want to get like a perfect copy, you know. And sometimes it can be a little bit hard. And when the copies are like four cents each, well, they were in the '90s. Therefore, you, you know, you can really go through your your um, copy card if you accidentally press the button, you know, number ten or something. So my, it was my role to try to help people with their photocopies, but yeah, people really were qu- quite keen to get like the perfect copy. And then some people would try and sneak and get like a try to you know, photocopy a whole book or something. And it was my role to, to um... <laughs> I never like I always wondered what would happen if like someone walked out with like a you know would the police be called that I've photocopied this whole book, or you take your your photocopy the entire book and then you put the book on the bookcase at home, like, ha now I've got a photocopy of the book. It's like, there's something about, like, the authenticity of having, like, the knowledge if I've got, like, the real thing, and I don't know, anyway, there's sort of thinking about this, and one uh, morning tea time, I uh, took one of these discarded photocopies, of which there were a few, even though I was trying to help people, um, and folded the discarded photocopy up into a paper plane and went into the dome reading room and, uh, and threw this paper plane, and uh, Later, I was to learn you don't throw a paper plane; you launch it. You like you give it flight. Anyway, I threw this paper plane into this, the dome reading room, of the, the state library, and it did this. It, not, it didn't really fly; it just it dived. For the people at home that are listening to this on the podcast, as you're doing a jog around the tan, <laughs> as if uh, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so anyway, the paper planes. Yeah. So, but when I did that, I was sort of thinking about. Like later, the internet had just sort of started. It didn't really, but like, you know, Web 1.0 where, remember, like, in the 90s, you had a Hotmail account. It was before um, before Gmail. I think Gmail was invented in 2004. So in the late 90s, you had a Hotmail account, and you might, like, check your email, like, once a week, at the end of the week, and it's like, hey, Walter, how come I'm, not getting any emails? And Walter's like, oh, have you sent any to anyone? It's like, no, I guess not, you know, so so it's a sort of communication thing. And Anyway, the internet was sort of, you know, kind of burgeoning at that, just sort of starting off at that time. And I was sort of thinking about, like, when I launched that paper plane, it was sort of like a bit of information that had been discarded, and I was putting it into the space of the dome reading room. And it's sort of like, uh, you know, the dome reading room. I don't know whether, like, it's sort of Melbourne's kind of one of Melbourne's best kept secrets because people, like, a lot of tourists in the olden days used to go. In the olden days, 2019, they used to go there. Um, and it was like one of Melbourne's kind of best kept secrets and a lot of kind of local people the library, it's there, but it's quite beautiful this, this dome reading room in the state library. And uh, can, like when you're sort of sitting there, it's like your ideas are sort of wafting up into this space and the space is like a cranium or a brain and yeah, then also thinking about this kind of poetic gesture and also this rebellious act of throwing this paper plane or well, yeah, just throwing it. And, yeah, thinking about this as a poetic gesture, that was, like, 2000... And then, like, in 2004, I thought, oh, like, imagine, like, launching 10,000 paper planes. Like, it was just a, seemed like a big number. And, um, yeah, to articulate this idea and of this sort of poetic gesture. And also thinking about, like, the future of libraries. Like, what's the future of libraries? If you have, like, the internet, like, you can just look up, you know, look up anything, and it's kind of quite incredible the way that libraries reframe them. So they, before the pandemic, it was like really super busy going to the state library or even like our local library is quite busy. There's a variety of different programs, access to books, all that sort of stuff, access to the internet. Um, So I was sort of thinking about the future of the library too. And sort of, I don't know, it's funny. There's often like a, I feel like there's a disconnect between like what I think about the work. Oh, it's like, I was this and, and this happened and this happened and then a person, like, experiencing the work in the real world. And I guess one thing that the project doesn't sort of encapsulate, like once I... So it's like in 2010, I applied for the George Moore Fellowship. So that was sort of like 12 years after this kind of initial gesture. Um, and I would see... In the meantime, I would see... I'd finished, like, art school, and I'd see... I'd meet someone at, at like, a party or something, and they'd say, oh, Oh, you work at the State Library? Uh, they they like, worked at the State Library. I'd left the State Library at that point. And i say, oh, you work at the- I've got this great idea <laughs> this, to, to launch 10,000 paper planes into the Dome Reading Room to this staff member at the State Library. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> sounds, sounds good. <laughs> no, <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> like, yeah, anyway, I applied for this fellowship, and I was, ex- I was accepted, like the project was accepted, which is, yeah, I feel quite fortunate and quite lucky that otherwise yeah it's sort of yeah yeah, as an artist sometimes you feel quite fortunate that the circumstances um provide you with these opportunities for four minutes yeah so yeah the idea was to record um the launch of 10,000 paper planes into the dome reading room with uh uh, eight cameras eight video cameras at that time there was this uh camera called the canon 5d mark ii was it Mark III? Anyway, it's just, you could record um, high-quality video. And I thought, oh yes, I'll set up with these cameras and then we'll take some photographs of like the aftermath. And uh, that was like the project that I applied to the fellowship. But I, yeah, I guess maybe the the bit that the project doesn't cap- encapsulate is all like the 35 people over five weeks folding the paper planes into the in the. Um, I had like an office as a part of the. Um, the fellowship, the folding of the paper planes, to like the 165 people that were involved in the launch of the paper planes, um, like the 10 people that helped you know, pick up all the paper planes <laughs> into, the, into the garbage bags, which took about 10 minutes. Um, yeah, so I guess like within this, there's all these other aspects of the artwork which I find kind of equally important to me as, an, as a practising artist. And it's always like this thing for the camera, oh, I'm going to launch 10,000 paper planes, a whole bunch of people, and it's going to be recorded by video and then still photos afterwards. But then the project sort of had like a life of its own. Um, yeah, as soon as people are involved, it was, that's, yeah, I guess one of the exciting things for me is, uh, you know, even like as we're folding paper, the paper planes and Ava is like, oh, you know, I'm studying part-time at RMIT. And it's sort of like one of those, I don't know, like a, I imagine, like, a quilting circle that you're sort of having, you're doing this task that is, you know, it's it's repetitive, and you kind of get it, and you can get it done in, like, you know, 35 seconds or 45, depends on how quick you are. It doesn't really matter, you're just, like, you're just hanging out with people doing this kind of task, and um, yeah, I guess the project doesn't kind of encapsulate any of that, or on the day when, it was on Labor Day, 20, uh, 20, 2011 was when the we did the launch, and it was on Labor Day because the library's closed. The library's only closed a couple of days, like four days a year. And at that stage, it was closed on Labor Day, which is also the same day as Moomba. And um, the Moomba Parade, We could sort of hear it on the street there. And so there was like 165 people like all kind of shuffling into the library really quietly, you know, because you're in a library. And it's like, we can be loud, but we sort of we, we weren't. Even sort of in this space here, it's like, oh, I'm in the art gallery and there's the white walls, and like, oh, there's all that work. And, and uh, you, there's like a reverence to the, the, the public space. Like, and, and then for us to be, oh, and what we're going to be doing is like, and people are you know, quite excited, and yeah, that other anticipation of when you're making your work, that the work doesn't necessarily encapsulate, but like, how do you, it's the, the only thing I've, I can only just tell you about it and say, oh, this is what it was like. It was really, you know, and to sh- share that experience. Um, yeah, because it's a different thing, so I guess then the, it became a it wasn't just this action for the camera, it became a performance and then all the people kind of contributed and everyone was like really invested in the project, they really wanted to make sure it was going to like go ahead, you know, you kind of like as an artist, you're, oh, you feel so supported in your community because people are assisting with you with your work and yeah, it was, yeah I don't know, I guess I'm just sort of picking the things that I think are I don't know, they're resonating after, was it 2020, like, you know, 12 years, 11 years later. Or like, you know, but then it's like eleven twenty, like in the 90s, like when it, like that, the German, like, oh, this is, yeah, this thing. Um, and then maybe the other bit is the, the dispersal of, of the work. Oh, that's right, getting back to the, yeah, so then the 10 people that collect, and then there was like 15 people that helped me unfold all these paper planes, because you kind of like, you got all this paper, You're not going to, like, just recycle it. You might as well, like, what are you going to do? So then we, like, unfolded the paper planes, and then we made... And then there was uh, five people that (laughs) helped me refold the paper planes. Uh, And there's a book there. Too bad we can't take the lid off, Andrew. I forgot to bring a spare book. But, yeah, we made this book, um, which is perfect. It's, like, perfect binding. So you can kind of, open the book up, and you can, like, open up... There's nothing inside it but the paper planes. You just, like, open the paper plane out. So that's... I think it's, like... 25 of 10,000 paper planes into a book, isn't it? I don't know, it's a thing. So there's, like, the photos, the videos, the performance, the book. But I guess, like, for me, like, the, yeah, telling you about the story is as important to me as the thing on the wall. The end? That was,
1: that, that was fantastic. Thank you. It's great to hear all the, um, all the background. I was one of those people that helped in a... Test trial of when we were testing how the planes were going to fly from the those wonderful balconies, and um, I remember that uh, that group action of everyone that was involved. So it's, it's nice to reflect on that. And then you just put together that, of course, you made a book out of the project. Is that book in the state library now? I,
2: you know what? I don't think they've got a copy, and I've almost sold out of it. But I'm going to do a very special edition. I think they need, edition. Yeah, <laughs> Andrew, they need to have one. Yeah, they need to have one. Yeah, I think the state library wanted to get one of these yes. ones. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> oh, very James. It's gonna be so expensive.
1: That's fantastic, um, James. Do you want to jump into you and Victoria's project? Uh, yeah, oh, I've just unmuted myself. We're just talking.
3: <laughs> but um, yeah, so some of what you were talking about really, yeah, like re- really kind of like fired stuff in my brain, mm-hmm. and um, for me. That, that kind of, like, that, those k- gatekeeper roles, you know, that, you know, like, people who work in museums and institutions have to manage. And in the end, when you think about it, like, these museums and these art galleries, these spaces, are they actually public spaces or not? You know, like, they're, they're for a particular public, um, and they're for a, a particular type of people. And for me, like, this project, um, it's called Resounding, and basically what it is, is looking at these 3000 year old, um, bronze drums from the north of Vietnam and from the area that used to be called Dong Cern. And so these drums are called Dong Cern drums and they were in, discovered by the French in the 1920s and 1930s. and. A lot of these drums ended up in collections overseas inside these museums um at the QMA, like at the louvre um and the the other th- story to these drums is that you know because of the Vietnam War, a lot of these went on to kind of like the the you know the antiques auction markets um and and I guess um a lot of these really significant cultural instruments and objects ended up in Western museums, ended up in glass cabinets, exactly like that. And again, with like these forms of infrastructures and gatekeepers around them. But um, yeah, so growing up in Bangsian, like I heard my dad and my mum talk about these drums and I've never seen them before really, until I actually went to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, where they had like a Big example and when when I went there I'm like oh these must be one of these tr- these drums and what was really sad though is that the the drum is actually behind a glass cabinet you know it's inaccessible and so I started thinking about how museums operate in the West and so like these museums operate by these concepts of preservation you know like you preserve these really rare objects from 3,000 years old for the future. And so you're like, but but whose future and what future? You know, like, what what are you actually preserving? And my first kind of, like, intervention, like, a few years later, was to go into the Australian Museum, because they also have an example, you know, collected from the 1970s around the time of war. And... And then I'm like, I'm gonna film myself again, performing for the camera, you know, making sure that it, there's an evidence. And then I started tapping on the, on the vitrine, you know, like creating kind of like this, this kind of like, I guess, intervention of disconnect. And then I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I can actually like get a hammer and smash the vitrine. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily I had a grinder date That night, and hilariously, like I I started talking with this person, and and they actually had been on like is it arts law, and they're like, no 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 no, don't don't do that, you know, like you'll never be able to access any fucking instruments or anything if you go into a museum in Australia and smash the glass. And I'm like, oh, but like you know, the gesture is really beautiful, and he's like. No, the gesture is not... The the work's not about you, you know? Like, the work is about looking at connections with history. And, you know, like, if you get prevented from it, potentially other people will get prevented from accessing this thing. And so he was like, okay, so working in the arts, what you really need to get attention from curators and whatever, like, and getting access in the museum is to form a community around you and, and, and I guess like that idea of developing and forming a community is actually the public. You know, like these museums talk about open publics, whatever, but they only want you if you have a group of people who's behind you so that if you do smash the glass cabinet, you know, you've got some academic that's like, ah, oh, but it's for a conceptual and you know, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's got cultural worth, right? <laughs> And it's not just someone like on Instagram, you know, like filming themselves like on an Insta story that disappears. So, yeah. And, and so over time, cut cut these stories short. Um, I met Victoria Pham, who's this incredible composer. Um, she she does kind of um, archaeology. She's doing archaeology in Cambridge and studying kind of like the origins of sound and percussion and and how percussion and sound actually evolved into spoken languages inside caves, you know. So so I was so fortunate to work with her. And then in the end we we tried to work with these museums. She had connections to the Australian Museum, you know, like I, I was speaking to like curators who were really into the project at the Art Avenue South Wales, but then we hit <clears throat> their boards, and also we hit their kind of um, protocols, and the protocols are still built around preventing touch, preventing intervention, um, even though, you know, all of these people that we were working with really wanted us to kind of like start to record the sounds of these drums and, and eventually send them overseas to kind of like our musicians and percussionists throughout Asia to make new music from, from these drums. And so we're still stuck in that kind of like weird space of rewriting protocols that probably won't happen. And so we bought a drum at auction. (coughs) So we, we bought our own drum. And through that, we proved to these museums that we can generate sound. And throughout this whole process, we actually met a lot of Vietnamese academics who were like, oh, these drums. They're actually weapons of war, you know, like, they're not some pretty harvest, ceremonial, rain, frog, (laughs) fertility thing that is on every fucking label in the museums, they're they're actually strategic war pieces, you know, that's, that's what the West doesn't want us to know ourselves. And so I was like, oh, really? And so the the story is that, like, these drums were traded throughout Southeast Asia, and they weren't owned just by Vietnamese people. Like, there's drum kind of like cultures that use these exact drums throughout Indonesia, and they're the precursor to the gamelan. Um, There's cultures throughout um, China and um, Myanmar, and they found drums that are like these drums in Bali. And what they were, was that they were spread throughout like, um, these communities, and whenever there was a, a threat of invasion, the community would bash on these drums. And it was okay, even though they're beautifully decorated, like, the, the thing was that it was really important to signal so that your families and other tribes from the hillsides can rush down and support you. And it was OK to smash up these drums in those circumstances for your own survival. And so when you think back to kind of like the West's idea of preservation, that preservation is something that's profoundly destructive. You know, when you're preserving something, you're preventing mute. Immune- a musical instruments from making it sound you're preventing a whole lot part, portion of the diasporic vietnamese or asian community from actually knowing about these drums and you're hiding a history that's completely unknown you know and and only through having a physical object that you can you know like play with and record with musicians and do all these things with being a public with do you discover these forms of alternative knowledge and these alternative forms of knowledge you know like feeds that the mythology around the object but also feeds that kind of like cultural identity and and cultural sense of value you know like we're not just something that's been captured and locked away we're, we're actually living we're actually producing music still um, yeah and and i guess it's it's really important to think about museums and how museums are important, but also always think about the public as ourselves and the public as sites that the museums need. You know, like, we are the things that the museums are meant to serve. You know, we're we're the things that actually produce knowledge and produce life. And, you know, like, life can also be
1: taken and put into a vitrine to die. That's fantastic. Thanks, James. I it was really interesting. I was thinking a lot about the passage of an object from one public to another public and the misunderstanding or complete lack of knowledge and how, from different perspectives, different uh, actions appear subversive or not. Um, and, yeah, that kind of... Um, what appears like a misuse within an ocular centric kind of museum culture is... a a misunderstanding from the origin of the object. So it's just really, really fascinating. There's just so much, obviously, so much research to be done there. Um, And thinking of your work in this exhibit, Eugenia, and your interaction with um, the architectural and public art forms in our public spaces, I was thinking about your kind of documented, um, I guess subversive interaction with Ron Robertson Swan's vault, which is outside where we are today and that kind of choreography and playing of that that you got into. So I just, I don't know, just one thought lent, lent to another. Um, yeah, I'd be fascinated to hear more about...
4: That. Nice segue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, I guess the, the work that um, I was very, yeah, kindly invited by Andrew to include in this exhibition is actually a bracelet. It's a resonance. so it's been really interesting hearing from um, Ross and James about, I guess, yeah, all the context around projects and how much that you know that it takes and how many kind of relationships and conversations it takes to actually create something and um, yeah my project is similar in that way Um, so this bracelet that you see here is um, the vault bracelet Um, you would have probably walked past uh, the vault otherwise known as yellow peril just outside here Um, and the bracelet formed part of a larger video project called the australian ugliness and it's a three-channel video work that was filmed across um, East Coast Australia and, um, yeah, very much, I I guess, thinking about what um, James has said then about uh, architecture as, you know, uh, the form that we engage with every day, you know, and I think at the time of making I was thinking a lot about how architecture is often seen as this quite elitist sort of form, something that only rich people can afford for their homes. Um, It sort of has come to pass that, you know, that is a real big aspect of it now. But I was interested in thinking about architecture as, you know, possibly, you know, the democratic space. Like the space that we all need. We all need shelter. Um, We all, you know, need homes. Um, And back at the time, I had been working as an editor on a design and architecture and art publication. And I didn't study architecture. I kind of didn't really know much about it, um, but through the process of editing and kind of researching and interviewing architects and spending more time in buildings and public spaces, um, I guess I realised, you know, I was making insulation, spatial work and there's a lot of synergies between, you know, I guess that and the design of space. So I started thinking about, well, yeah, what is, you know, what is my take on this space? And also linking to what James said as well, it's like, um, you know, these are spaces that we all should feel like we own. But I think, you know, often, um, yeah, public spaces or kind of key, um, you know, examples of architecture are spaces that are not necessarily welcoming or inviting to people like me or people kind of... Um, Yeah, outside the sort of, I guess, yeah, Western design sort of field. And I I found that curious and I wondered if my project could maybe provide an entry point back into these spaces. So I read the book, The Australian Ugliness, which is a book written in 1960 by Robin Boyd, who was like a key Australian modernist. Um, and it's a book that I hadn't read, you know, at the time because it was actually out of print for like 30 years or something but it had been like a, um, a bestseller and it was on like high school book lists so I was interested in the fact that this, um, this sort of text which had been key to Australia's understanding of its identity and kind of aesthetics at the time was actually out of print um, for many decades and I wanted to sort of understand why and I wanted to know more about um, yeah, this, this take on Australia. And I guess in reading the book, um, I found a lot maybe that I didn't necessarily agree with, but a lot that also did still stand in that, um, you know, Robin Boyd, you know, definitely was a man of his time, but he was interested in this idea of architecture being accessible to everybody. And I, I definitely kind of picked up on that. So long story short... Um, that sort of brought me to making this work. So it was, I often like to kind of um, have a dialogue with texts that have gone before, thinkers that have gone before. So I often I often rip off names. So I often, like, call my works the works of things, you know, the names of things that are already in existence, which is a bit cheeky, but it's also a direct link to that original. Um, and so for me, my Australian ugliness was about kind of bringing... Yeah, like a diasporic feminist um, kind of take on the architecture you know, and public space and also opening up our understanding of what architecture is because in the work, you know, spaces like the Sydney Opera House are there but also like a roadside toilet block, you know, off the Calder Park Freeway are as well and I think um, for me it was really important that, you know, all this kind of uh, real yeah, breadth of spaces were included. And, um, you know, myself as one of the performers, but also um, James Andrews, who's in this image here, who's performing Akka. Um, So James put on this incredible uh, costume made out of cardboard and sandpaper. And we filmed outside Akka on a, like a scorching hot day. And James was wearing the beautiful bracelet um, on, on his wrist. And the idea with the work was really, yeah, as um, Andrew said, to kind of push back against the spaces and sort of insert our bodies, um, bodies that, yeah, aren't necessarily welcome. The cast was, uh, you know, intergenerational and um, fluid genders. And I think, yeah, I think it was really a kind of playful intervention into these sites. And so, yeah, it's really nice to kind of see this trace um, in the bracelet and I love what you've done with the display. I think um, Andrew and I spent, I don't know, like a month back and forth. Like, oh, do we get like a fake arm or like what it do we... It was quite an
1: involved process. Because <laughs> of, of COVID, we couldn't rely on being able to get anything from overseas. So, yeah. yeah. But, and then I made that in the shed in the backyard.
4: Yeah, <laughs> Andrew is actually an amazing sculptor and artist himself. So, very fortunate that like, yeah, he found such a beautiful kind of um, display. So... Yeah.
1: So, for people listening at home, the display is made out of Corten steel, which is what ACCA is made out of. Um, and it was, I, you know, it would have been too many layers to get into this, but ACCA is um, it's almost like a blackboard for the public. So, people come up and draw things into it with their fingers. And so, there's a, a real record of what people think and feel and tags all over the place. And it was interesting working with that material, you know, in miniature. Um, and then thinking about ACRA as kind of like a lightning rod for who's around and how they record themselves. Um, thanks, everyone. That was just like such a diverse and interesting um, series of windows into what you've done and what you're interested in and um, how you have ended up here. Um, and I think, just going back to your comment, uh, Eugenia, about ripping off your titles from other people, um, I, I'm quite a fan of that that kind of quotation, and I, I like it. It's, a, it's kind of almost like a mark of respect. Like, you know, I've recognised that I'm engaging with your work, and if you look at it, you'll know that I understand that and being honest honest about it. Um, But also, I think it's interesting to think about public space, you know, who's the public, who gets to decide who's in the public, and what gets to shape public space is a really uh, intertextual kind of thing. So um, I guess referencing what's there is your uh, kind of right and prerogative, you know, Um, and it just leads to kind of I don't know, just more dialogue and more evolution of, of what's already going on. And I think um, part of the joy of uh, doing this kind of project with students is that they start to look at what's in their public spaces and actually think about why it's there and how it got there, who makes the decisions. Ross, you talked about the luck of 10,000 paper planes being accepted for that program. And like, so much of what happens in our public spaces is down to you know, a decision that might have gone one way. So it's a really interesting kind of almost like a choose-your-own-adventure future-making undertaking, um, and there's a few works, uh, propositional works in the display that uh, I describe as as yet unrealized, so not unrealized, but something that may still happen um, because, you know, they just didn't have the right people on the other end of the application, or they're kind of too expensive, or City of Melbourne's a bit risk-averse, or those kinds of things, um, but it's just kind of fascinating um, I guess, phenomenon, you know, looking at what's there and imagining what might be there. Um, and I think, through what you've each said, there's there has been a lot of future gazing and future thinking and how things might change, like Ross, you're talking about libraries then and I'm thinking about libraries now really turning into, um, I guess, community hubs, like you know, the kind of youth spaces and community spaces we used to have, which I guess became unfashionable at a point and disappeared and now where the library is headed back to, I think. Um, and James, you're thinking about uh, the museum. I'm kind of imagining how uh, the Sun drum might be within a museum, but playable, and how do you like, mediate that kind of activity? And then um, Eugenie is yours. It's precious in my mind, so I haven't got anything clever to say about it yet. But I was wondering how the three of you kind of imagine future public spaces, or even how you would interact with the idea of the public in your practices going ahead.
2: I was thinking, even now, just coming, you know, being here <laughs> in public <clears throat> with my mask off feels tricky, you know, so to, yeah, to sort of imagine forward, Andrew, it's really, yeah, I sort of feel like, personally, I've, I've sort of stepped back and I feel like I've stepped away from the public, and I guess that's a big challenge. Next, even just to kind of, like, for have, to have four or five people sitting around a table having a coffee and a, you know, a glass of water meeting and having a conversation. That's like a, for me, it's weird. It sounds like a big step, you know, let alone doing a big project where, you know, you're engaging with a, a, a community of more than 10 people. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah I, I, yeah, I still feel like I'm just sort of coming out of that that fog of that, that kind of COVID fog still. Um, James, over to you. <laughs> <coughs> You're out of the fog. <laughs> I don't know. Like, <laughs>
3: I'm a shapeshifter, so, so any situation's fine. Right? <laughs> but yeah, like th- thinking through that idea of public, I'm like, <gasps> I'm, in, I'm, I'm I'm at a public talk in ACA, I've made it. Like, <laughs> I've arrived. <laughs> But yeah, like it's that thing where you know like again, like how we got here is dependent on like some random person on some board on some meeting thing and then we build up these opportunities and we accrue people with us and those people give us more and more opportunities. And so I'm like, yeah, people are are the jam, you know, like even though like, you know, they potentially have covert. Like <laughs> at the end of the day, you rely so much on people, you know, like so much on people's faith and so much on people's trust in kind of like going along on this fun journey. And for for this drum, like I I think what we want to do is kind of like stick it on the back of a ute and then just like have parties. Like, I, I kind of want to have parties so. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. that ACDC be industry? Yeah. Oh, good idea. I'll steal that. <laughs> you can steal it. Just film it and then, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's that kind of thing where now we can start thinking about, you know, like being with people again and then, you know, exploiting people <laughs>
2: for our, <laughs> our art. <laughs>
4: so evil (laughs) um yeah I think I think that what you said before about um us being public like people being public and the social like the importance of kind of like social gathering and actually coming together that for me is always the future like it's always been what I've strived for I think with projects that I, you know, I do do exhibitions in gallery spaces, but I always take work outside. Like, I always want to kind of bring work to people. And I think um, I'll always need to do that. And so, of course, it's tricky with COVID, but at the same time, in a weird way, we could still go outside. We could still kind of, like, do strange interventions or even just going for a walk, you know, with a friend and talking. That's, like, so critical. Even that's, like, a a public space and a kind of shared conversation. So I think as long as we can always find ways to do that. Um, and we were talking just before about how we're not really artists that necessarily work in the studio. Like, <laughs> we're sort of like post-studio or trans-studio, <laughs> whatever that means. But I think it's because we work with public in different ways. Like, because we're sort of trying to break down barriers and make the work that we do, um, you know, really invitational, propositional trying to kind of get away from those gatekeepers even though yeah it's weird because we're in a system where um you know you have to try and keep gaining opportunities or showing your work so there's like a weird dance that you have to do I think within the whole institution of art and museums but uh, yeah sorry you go
3: oh no no, no. You, yeah. you're, you <laughs> you're like waving at me um
4: yeah, yeah. I think yeah as long as yeah, you remember to kind of get outside and remain subversive and sort of keep gathering. It's good.
3: Like, sorry, uh, yeah. Like, I yeah. Looking at that vitrine, you know, ironic that I'm in a vitrine. Like, the work. With <laughs> it's perspex, right. so you could break it. <laughs> yeah.
4: it might be harder to break. <laughs>
3: but but kind of like that thing where maybe we don't need to do anything more because, like, all of these gestures and ideas, they're breathtakingly imaginative and magical, right? Like, when, when someone walks in and they look at the, the paper plane, they're like, fuck, like where can I launch these planes? You know, mm. like, maybe I can launch it at Scott Morrison's face. Mm. You know, like... And then the, the other thing is, you know, like, when you look at, you know, the embodied Akka, you're like, buildings are breathing and alive. Like, mm. you know, like, how can, like, these, these buildings that you think about, like, how are they like these creatures? And so maybe we don't really need to, to do anything. You know, like, maybe it's up to people with their imagination to imbue it with an additional life that would take it somewhere else. That, that, that might be so much more beautiful.
4: I guess that's the invitation, right? Like, whenever we make something, that's the offering. It's like, you know, this is, this is a vision. It's an alternative kind of reality, and it's for you to make of it what you will, and, and then, you know, let's see. There's
1: kind of a um, thing that all three of you are speaking about like chiefly ephemeral projects. There's a kind of um, modesty there in terms of allowing space for future iterations of other things and other people's thoughts that is in real counterpoint to, you know, kind of statue culture of like, you know, earliest colonial public artworks in Australia. Um, And I think it's kind of like signals just a big thinking shift and cultural shift. And I I just wanted to comment on you talking about um, being subversive, Eugenia. I think there's, like, some good teaching to be done in public art courses about being strategically duplicitous about what you want to do and why you're doing it. So you have the official record, and you're like, this is, you know, engaging with this and this, and it's all going to be really positive and blah, blah, blah. And then you have, like, this personal idea of, you know, what what it's going to be like and what it represents. And, um, you know, both of those stories can be projected onto the same performance or image or or object Um, and I quite like the idea of you know getting the thing done and getting through the the gatekeepers and the processes and then you know publishing your own you know what might be the actual story for why you've done what you've done.
4: I had to be very duplicitous in my (laughs) in my making of that work because I sort of had to I had to broker you know permissions to film in all the different buildings and Also, it was, you know, at the time, for me, the most ambitious project I'd done, I had to raise a lot of, like, find a lot of money to do it. Um, Not a lot of money, but for me, you know, at that time, it was a lot. It was a big um, kind of fundraising effort. So, there was a lot of um, writing, you know, kind of multiple different sort of project pictures with some things omitted or, like, some things kind of, like, yeah, slightly massaged and... I mean, none of it was really underhand because it wasn't supposed to be a sort of, um, you know, interrogative journalistic kind of take on architecture or a documentary either. But, um, yeah, it was interesting, I think, engaging with architects and, um, you know, people who, I think, design buildings in a certain way and are, are very, you know, kind of dedicated and particular about how those buildings are portrayed. I think for me, as we've been talking about today, it's not until people are in the buildings that they actually do come alive. And I think um, it was interesting to sort of try and, yeah, negotiate, um, yeah, the sort of the architect's vision with this more subversive kind of vision and how you communicate that in the lead-up and also how it kind of manifests in the work as well. But, yeah, I think it's okay to massage a few things.
1: Yeah. Massage is definitely the the better word to go with. (laughs) Don't ruffle any feathers. Um, I think might be a good moment just to take Oh, questions in the audience Sonia yeah wonderful <laughs> just
0: Sorry, you, need to respond. <laughs> you just heard the sound of that being sanitized uh, Thank you, everybody. Um, I came a little bit late, but I'm I'm noticing, and I've been to this space a few times already, and we're sitting in this space that's rather bifurcated, and as we're sitting here watching you and listening, we have a whole lot of established artists who've presented works on this wall, but we've also got on this wall um, a whole lot of pieces that have been generated through this space being at ACCA for several months now. And the question is, sorry for all participants, but the question's for you, Andrew. (laughs) Um, Can you maybe nominate one of the works here, uh, without notice, so sorry, like one of the works that you've chosen or someone's chosen to appear on this wall, um, presumably from a secondary school student or a primary school student? and, um, you know, one that might sort of teach us something about, you know, prospects of making art in public space.
1: Yeah, I can do that. Uh, Give me a moment. Uh, So what what was envisaged for this wall was an iterative um, exhibition that we'd change over. Because of the timing of the exhibition, uh, you know, it's mainly holidays, there haven't been as many groups as we usually have. We usually have about 12 and a half thousand students a year when it's not COVID times. Um, So we do get really busy, but uh, you're seeing um, work by primary school students and high school students. And I don't think there's any tertiary work here, but um, quite a variety. And there's a kind of group work and individual work. Um, But I'll just go to one of the, I think uh, kind of crispest and earliest work. So this um, piece here, and I'll do a quick visual description is uh, two crashed paper airplanes made out of foam core and masking tape. Um, kind of like they're just smashed into the ground next to one another. And I thought it was really interesting because it was um, in response to Ross's work with all their airplanes. Um, and students have been really taken by that, I think, because the form of the airplane, paper airplane is so close to school life and, and everyday life. Um, but I, I quite love this because it makes perfect sense and there's a lot of dynamism to it, but it's also really dark. And um, I was kind of thinking, if you were trying to <laughs> like propose this for a space, like even just the echoes of you know, 9-11 and those kinds of things, it'd be incredibly difficult to get it to happen anywhere, I think, without quite an unambiguous comedic angle or something like that. So I just thought there was a lot of room for really interesting discussion um, in the professional realm, like beyond, beyond school, and, and uni even um, yeah and then uh, uh, I don't know they, they go in all sorts of directions that's a very direct response um, which is what I assumed we'd get more of um, kind of bouncing directly off what's in the room or, or elsewhere and who's afraid of public space but they also just get really um, abstract there's kind of things that just look like little pom-poms and I've no idea what that student was imagining when they made it but I like the idea that that is what they would want to see and kind of how they would want to experiment so yeah that's what I would say is there anyone else who has a question or something they want to ask someone?
0: Question, question for James. Did you go on a second date?
3: <laughs> 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 Not with that person. I just took their advice and ran. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, it's interesting that you were talking about um, kind of like the conventions of sculpture, right? And um, whilst I was... Talking with like Vietnamese academics about the bronze, they're like, uh, you know how in the Black Lives Matters movement people are pulling it down, and all these nationalists, they're they're saying, oh, these sculptures are permanent. Like, oh, uh, like during Roman times, and you know, like these public monuments were actually ways for a city to kind of like secure itself. Yes, it was for propaganda, but also the other thing was it was so that it could hold on to metal for war and so like these monuments are actually designed as security like in times of conflict or war like right now like these sculptures would be pulled down turned into weapons so that people can defend themselves you know so that idea of permanence is kind of like really weird like it's actually not historically accurate
1: Um, yeah it makes me think about how people have you know inherited uh, you know white marble sculptures, and that's how they like them, and that's how they think they look good and completely ignoring the polychrome um, origins of them. Um, but that idea of metal as something that you can hold on and reuse and reinvent as history changes, I think is really really powerful and really interesting. Um, and I thought uh, it was fascinating to hear you talk about the drums being you know instruments of war or like really important in wartime because they're such uh, beautiful objects and, you know, they have little, a lot of them have the little frogs cast on the exterior and they just look so peaceful and kind of, <laughs> imagine being really sonorous and stuff and you don't associate them with um, times of crisis. So, yeah, it's kind of fascinating to hear that, that background. Was there anyone else who wanted to make a comment or, or ask anyone anything on the panel?
0: Thank you. Um... I just had one question which was, I'm kind of interested in creating art for public spaces even though I don't have much of a background in it, and I'm not currently doing an arts degree or anything like that. So I was just wondering, because there's so much gatekeeping and because there's so much you need to know the right people, how would someone like me who doesn't have any connections or anything like that kind of go about trying to make these relationships, these connections?
4: Um, there's a really great program that the City of Melbourne runs called Test Sites, um, and actually there's a really great like crew of people in the public art sort of department at the City of Melbourne right now. Um, so there are these little, I think they're like, I don't know, maybe five grand, like little micro grants that you receive. But it's not just the cash; it's also the mentoring and the kind of, um, and you get taken through that whole process of having to apply for permits and. Um, yeah, I I guess how to write and talk about your work. So I guess I'd recommend maybe starting there. You don't need to do a degree in public art. You don't need to do a degree in art at all. Like, just to have an interest in, um, you know, kind of saying something in public is enough, I think. So, yeah, maybe check out City of Melbourne test sites. Um, Also, there's other great, like, community um, networks and sites to connect with, like, uh, testing grounds and where else site works in Brunswick, Um, next wave. I mean, the list goes on. We can talk about it later if you'd like. But yeah, there's, there's a wealth of people and knowledge out there and you don't have to be any kind of expert.
2: I would just to say, to add to that, Eugenia, it's just like, who can you bring with you as well? Like your family, your friends? because <clears throat> it's like you're doing a marathon you don't really know you're doing a marathon you're just going for a little walk and then the walk turns into a little jog and you know so but to have all your yeah i, I would think about yeah the support people and cuz it's tricky cuz some some people have the parents they go oh whatever you, you think or but other people's parents, you know, might not be supportive. But, yeah, I, I guess I'd be encouraging you to get your people around you to get those people that are interested in what you're interested in and, like, bring them on the journey. So you're doing it together. So you can say, oh, James, that was really tough and blah, blah. Or it's really... Or it's great. And you can say you can share the highs and the lows and you just sort of... Yeah, that, that other community of your immediate family and friends. And with those kind of professional links, I think it's... Yeah. What do you think, James? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because, like,
3: your community might not be in the arts, but they have these profound knowledges that other places are missing, you know. Like just just have that kind of like sense of the value that you already have, you know? And don't be afraid to, you know, like it's really great now that we can, you know, like open up and go to events and stuff. But but don't be afraid to ask performers questions. So like, stay back behind after a performance or something and ask them, you know, oh, about their work and then stalk them on Instagram. <laughs> 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 yeah, and, and basically just insert yourself into the space, you know, like, and, and ask them, you know, like, how can I help? You know, like, can volunteer for... There, there's so many projects. And then you, you collaborate with, say, dancers or musicians or whatever. And then you know you, you develop skills for like grant writing. Eventually, they'll show you how to do that. And then you you have a million ideas in your head. And then you'll you find ways through your community, but also through the people that you put yourself forward to, and, and they will mentor and help you. The art world's not that scary, you know. Like and you know like a lot of times we feel inadequate. But actually, we just need to be brave enough to put ourselves forward and just to meet people, be interested in them, and then they'll become interested in us, and that's when you know you kick in and you insert your <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, get get arrested. You'll become Insta-famous. Excellent. Thanks, everyone. Um, I really enjoyed the session. I've loved hearing from everyone up here, but also everyone in the audience, too. And I think it's a really nice uh, note to end on, that there is a kind of um, uh, very organic, supportive public just all around you, and artists are generally very willing to... Help with knowledge that they've got, um, especially if you're just interested in what they're doing and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's good good feeling to end on. Um, so, I'll just say thanks to Ross, Eugenia, and James. Wonderful to hear from you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, and also, Bianca Juanada Putri, for collaborating on this event. It's been a pleasure to work with you. Um, we've got a sound walk that's happening with uh, Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth, also in the audience, starting uh, very soon. Is there spots left in that, Bianca? Yeah, so if anyone wants to come on a sound walk, Pretty much immediately, I think it's going to be a really wonderful experience. Um, and if you want to engage further with the work that we talked about today, Ross, do you have any more of those ten thousand paper plane books that people could get hold of, or mm, maybe,
2: maybe? I'm a bad business. I'm, no. a, I'm a bad business person. <laughs> so you, um, actually, yeah, Trent, if you went to negative press, that's where. Yeah, there might be a few books there and there's a special, special edition that the State Library is going (laughs) to be purchasing really soon. Yeah, Trent Walter, Negative Press, I guess that's where you'd find that. Um,
1: It's a fabulous kind of non-book book. book. Um, And also, if you want to engage more with James and Victoria's project, there are two QR codes on the uh, information about the room where you can hear and Acknowledgement of Country in Vietnamese Language, and also a composition by Victoria. So you can hear some of that resonance that we've been talking about that you can't hear through the vitrine. Um, and also um, Eugenia's book, uh, The Ambassador which is uh, kind of covers three projects that are all interlinked, including the Australian ugliness, is for sale in the Acker bookshop, if you want to grab a copy of that. Um, thanks everyone for coming.
4: Thank you, thanks Andrew.